today I welcome the two heads at Felsted School, Chris Townsend and Simon James. In this episode, I chat to two heads from the same school and discuss the merits of co-education versus single sex, embedding character education into school values, being adaptable, plus being honest about equality and diversity within a school. This is the first time we've had two heads on the podcast together. Are your roles and responsibilities equal school-wide, or is one of you the real boss for ultimate outcomes and ownership? It's a good question. I mean, officially, I'm the head across the whole school, so I guess the buck would stop with me on that. But I think we work pretty closely together. It'd be very hard to work together without having a a sort of shared vision of what we're trying to achieve. So um, the buck does stop here sometimes, but we work pretty closely together. But that's it. And, you know, I'm assuming that that's from a governance point of view rather than how you actually publicly say that. Because, you know, you look online, uh, you look at your website, it's very rare that you see meet the heads. It's either it's the head and then you have a a kind of a senior school or a prep school head. So was that a deliberate decision? No, I think that I mean, I think we work together on um, things like open days and and meetings and so on, where we, we make a point of standing together and communication is often done jointly to make sure that it's a, a single voice for the school. But no, it's not. It's not something that's been done deliberately. Ultimately, we're Felsted School. And I think that's the key here that, yes, I'm the head of the prep school and Chris is the head of the senior school and the whole school. But it's important that we share the same values and we stand together on everything that we do. And I think as Chris touched upon the communication, especially given the last sort of 12 months as a school in particular, that we are very much singing from that proverbial same hymn sheet. It's very important that that is. And, and I fully respect the relationship that Chris has got all that ultimate overall responsibility. At the same time, I love working together in shaping the future for yeah, the younger Felstedians, but seeing them go through into becoming senior school pupils as well. Yeah. And how do you ensure a strong and fruitful relationship between the senior school and the prep school heads does exist? You know, there must be benefits, but there must be a huge amount of challenges too to overcome. What do I see as the strengths of it? Well, I think it's communication is the key. I mean, we talk regularly, we have a scheduled meeting once a week, but we talk probably most days about certain things, especially at the moment. Challenges of it, I suppose, is we're on two separate sites, effectively, but the village is the school and we have a road between us, but there's very much the proverbial bridge over that road between the two sites. So I suppose that's the only challenge is the geographical sort of nature of it. That's all I can think of from my perspective. I mean, I guess both of us have, have got strengths and weaknesses, but we're able to help each other out through that. I think it's one of the real strengths of the school because you can be quite isolated as a head at times. And I think to have somebody that you can you know, bounce ideas off or challenge or whatever, I, I don't think it's a challenge. I think it's an opportunity for us. I think it works pretty well on the whole. And after all, leadership is as much about listening as telling. So I think working together and hearing what other people have got to say and get, getting a different context on things is an important way of work. Your tagline is developing character, making a difference. Is this just marketing speak or can you demonstrate these outcomes with your pupils? And if so, how? Definitely not just marketing speak. I mean, it's something deep within the culture of the school, something that we reinforce on a daily basis. So, I mean, I think we we look to and succeed in developing the character of the individuals who go through the school. Not to say that every single person you bump into at the school will always be showing the characteristics you would want, but in an environment where they're learning about the values and they're learning about the principles of self-improvement and so on. And I think also that making a difference has got two meanings for us. One is that we're looking to make a difference with the individual to give them the best development that they can have. But also we're looking at creating young people who are going to go out in the world and make a positive difference there as well. So it's not just about school outcomes. 
It's actually about what they go on and do afterwards. And in some ways, that's still a work in progress, trying to track that impact as students go out from the school. But there's lots of good individual stories. There's lots of anecdotal evidence of the sort of impact that fell studies have when they go out into the world. So, I mean, making a difference, you, you talked about the difference there. So it's twofold. It's one, what, what difference can the, the students make on the world and on themselves? And also what difference can Felstead itself make to the community? I noticed you contributed £18 million to the GDP of your local authority. That to me appears to be an enormous amount of money. What exactly does that cover? serious chunk of money. I think schools are a big part of their communities. So we're far and away the biggest local employer. So we're providing jobs for people. We're keeping the local economy turning over. We, Because of our presence, the village is really thriving. So it's got post office, it's got local shop, it's got local pubs, restaurants, and so on. All of that kind of business does depend to a large extent upon the symbiotic relationship with the school. So we benefit from what the village has got, but the village also hopefully benefits from what we offer. And so making sure there's that close link between the community, the local community and the school community, and that we get on well with one another is, is really important to us. And that requires work because obviously the village is a, is a very peaceful place when the school's not here. And then suddenly you throw a thousand students in and parents coming in and all the employees and so on. It, it changes the village significantly, but hopefully the local community sees us as a positive and we do things to support the local community. And we certainly see that our relationship with them as a real positive. I mean, coming back to the developing character and the, the making a difference, you know, I talk about the values a lot through my assemblies with the younger pupils, you know, to talk about and stories, but then it's the impact that that, that hopefully has with their own lives, with the lockdown in particular, in terms of we talk about service a lot, you know, their own initiatives to raise. It's not just about raising money. It's about support and that very, very simple thing of kindness. I think that's a big part of character development. And I think we've certainly noticed that in the last, since the pandemic, is the importance of kindness and stressing that within our community. A lot of schools talk about character and obviously this pandemic has, has asked something of us all and it's definitely character and it's resilience. What are you doing at Felster to build this into everyday life at school? And is that easy to do in the prep school? In terms of their character, it's all those values of resilience, as you talked about, of being adventurous, of being welcome, of being welcoming, of being inspirational, as we talk about. But you can and you can talk about, we, I'm a big believer in the idea of a growth mindset. You know, everything is possible if you keep trying hard and learn from mistakes and mis making mistakes is okay. So from the very youngest of four years of age, by making mistakes, we're actually learning. That's the key point to remember there. That develops resilience and character you know, along the way as well, as well as all the opportunities and experiences they're afforded, you know, overcoming something on a, on a rugby pitch or producing a piece of artwork, which wasn't that easy. You know, those kind of things where you, you stick to it develops that resilience. So it is important to instill this and talk about character in the prep years and not wait until they turn to being teenagers. Because that's what we're about as a school. And it starts from the age of four, from the first day they come here. And Chris, how do we develop that when it gets into the, the senior school? because they'll understand it more and their actions will probably have more impact as they develop this. I mean, I think what Simon said is really interesting. The, the idea of developing lots of those characteristics at a young age, you want to build on that. You want to have a positive uh, peer group experience. You want children to feel like they are challenged all the time, both educationally, but also with their thinking about the world. So not accepting that the world has to be the way it is, but thinking about how they can make a change to it. So I think it's tied in intrinsically to the idea of making a difference as well. Your experience as an individual, if you feel like you 
you can make a difference, then that drives your character, I think, to try and do positive things. It'll be really interesting coming out from the lockdowns, how that's impacted on people, because some people have really thrived on the resilience, the independence and so on, and done incredibly well through it. Some have found it really tough and they're going to need a bit of time to be built back up. Character education is not about saying, right, here's the stamp and that's what you're going to look like. It's about working with the individual, making time for those conversations underpinned by strong values, but making time for the individual to understand what it means for them. People talk about the, the learning loss, the catch-up need post-lockdown. I'm not convinced by the fact there's a, there's a huge learning loss, but I think the social aspect of education, which is critical and is something that has really not been talked about enough in education for years, is something that we are going to see as we come out from the lockdown. We're going to see that, that social deficit that needs to be made up and making sure that children have time to enjoy their education, to, to appreciate the fun things, as well as just trying to fill gaps in learning that they might have missed. I completely agree with you when it, when it comes down to the social side. You know, I've, I've talked a lot on this podcast with about mental health, anxiety, and where we're all suffering. And, you know, this isn't just the pupils, the students, the kids. This is the teachers. This is the parents. But I know where my kids were, were thinking about going back to school, actually quite anxious. I was surprised at that because lockdown two in 2020, I was, they were like, no, no, I'm really ready to go back now. Now they've been at home for so long and they were at home for so long, suddenly they're kind of a little bit nervous. And so there has to be this, this softly reintroduction. The schools have got to adapt and not kind of, right, it is not about learning loss. I'm afraid knowledge is a commodity like oil. They will have access to that and I'm sure that we'll get back up to speed. So what should we be doing to kind of bridge that gap when we get back? From my perspective, it's listening. It might be that we do that through a worry box or something because so many children have gone through so many things and families have experienced so many things that yeah, we might know a little bit about. In reality, we don't know everything. And I think that reintegration is going to be key and the socialization is going to be key. What are they looking forward to? For the younger ones, it's playtime. You know, the actual ability to, to run and skip and, and hug, you know, occasionally with each other is a very important part of what we're going to have to do. So the biggest thing is to listen and to watch very carefully as well, I think, to make sure that things are as they should be or that we can support it to the best of our abilities. Just be careful on that hugging, though. You might have to, might have to get them to wait a little bit before we can do that. Very true. <laughs> try and tell that to a four-year-old though at times. <laughs> exactly, the hug. Yeah, yeah the four-year-old who, yeah. I think one of the challenges is that society is telling everybody that getting out of lockdown is, is what everybody wants. In one sense, the students cannot wait to be back at school, but there is definitely that anxiety, that change. What's it going to be like? Am I ready for it? There's enough challenges for teenagers anyway, in terms of how they fit into their social groupings, that being away from it for so long is making it quite a tough challenge. So I do think that I'm not really interested in um, catch-up lessons and things like that. I'm interested in making sure that when the children come back into school, they see things that they can enjoy. They have time to, to enjoy being with one another without too much pressure. I've been quite disappointed, really, at, at some of the statements about exam gradings and the consultation about exam gradings, which focused almost entirely on maintenance of standards and not on student well-being. What does it mean to maintain standards when kids have not been in school for most of the year? Education isn't about standards. It's about opportunity. The most important thing for the students coming through now who are going to receive their grades in the summer is that they don't have opportunity taken away when it's not been their responsibility. And that's not just us. That's not Felstead. That's the whole country. Add to that that happy children will achieve. 
So if you look after their well-being, the rest will take care of itself eventually. I've always signed up to that. My wife and I has always been, you know, happy and confident child. Yeah, I, I know that being one of those, I wasn't the brightest, worked extremely hard, but came out being happy and confident makes a massive difference. And we do need to do that. Now we're in the perfect storm as well. You know, you talked about outcomes, you talked about, you know, meeting standards. We need to be measured on child well-being and happiness. And, you know, they're not mentally strong when they are going through their teens and come out at the end of school, then we're going to have this generation that are going to struggle to actually make a difference in that workplace. So I think we're, we've got this problem still to deal with. But exam reform, I think, has to be on the table, particularly around GCSEs. But I want to talk to you about equality and diversity because I really love seeing what you wrote again on your website. You, you have a whole page dedicated to this. And it was set up and you set up a committee on the back of Black Lives Matter. You have a committee that was set up to meet weekly to listen and to act. Simon, let's start with you at the prep school. It's a tough subject area for children under 11 to grasp, but a conversation that needs to be started and had, right? Absolutely, it is. I mean, in terms of the committee, it's very early stages for the prep school. We haven't got any representation on that yet, although we're looking to do that, certainly going forward. In terms of the conversations, yeah, they happen through our PSHE lessons and tutorial sessions. You know, whether you're watching a Premier League football match with taking the knee and it's understanding what that's about. But I suppose the other thing that's probably more important is that we're looking at our curriculum and making sure there's diversity within that as well and that equality exists within that. So that's going to be our focus and getting children probably at the top end of the prep school involved in that committee at some point. But starting that conversation young, it needs to be had because, you know, they'll form opinions. You know, we need to be having that conversation early. Obviously, more action can be done in the senior school. What initiatives are you currently implementing and have you seen a tangible difference in how this whole area is supported now at Felsted? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's, a, it's an absolutely critical area for us. I think one of the good things over the summer was that we were able to engage with a number of former pupils uh, who'd not necessarily had great experience in terms of diversity coming through the school. It opened, it certainly opened my eyes to what school can be like when it doesn't work well. I think that sort of openness to recognizing that maybe sometimes we're not very aware of diversity and equality and we don't necessarily understand in an area, part of the country that we're in, is not the most diverse. Families aren't necessarily experiencing a great deal of diversity in their day-to-day -day life. The importance of them learning and looking outward and, and real genuine global citizens is absolutely critical. So I think we've looked at curriculum, we've looked at recruitment, we've looked at, I mean, simple things like displays in classrooms. What kind of messages do we put out to our students? Are we saying that if you don't look like this, you won't be successful? A lot of that sort of subliminal messaging can be really, really negatively uh, reinforcing. So the last year has, has opened my eyes to the difference between being tolerant and actually being understanding, supportive and promoting equality. I'd like to think that by the end of my time in schools, I will have made that shift. I will have had an influence, a positive influence on a greater sense of diversity and equality within the schools that I work in. Great. Simon, let's talk about the role of a prep school within an all-through school. Is it simply to prepare pupils for senior school life, or is there more to it than that? I'd certainly argue that there's more to it than that, but it, it certainly is preparing them for senior school life. But I think every stage of their educational journey is preparing them for the next stage. I think it's really the job of the prep school is to engage in a love of learning. And if we've done that, then we've done our job and make sure that they leave us at 13 happy, engaged, 
but also with that joy of, of learning. I want to learn something every, new every day. And I say that to the children regularly. So our role is to, is to open their eyes to opportunities, provide those opportunities, to nurture and guide them, to engage with those opportunities. So that's our role. It's more than just preparing them for the senior school. It's, well, we have a phase system within the prep school. So you have the pre-prep. We chunk it into year three and four, five and six, year seven and eight. And at each stage, that journey is slightly different. And the opportunities are slightly different, reflecting their ages. So um, that's our job. Chris, anything to add? Not really. I mean, I think the role of any school is to look after the children at the stage that they're at and prepare them for the next stage. And that applies year by year as well as uh, as well as across different schools. It's a real strength that we have the whole range from four to 18, although not that many students will do all 14 years. It does provide a continuity. So we do feel like we're able to really develop the individual as they go through that journey. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. We've heard a lot on this podcast about the benefits of same-sex education. Felsen is a school that is proudly co-educational. Why does co-education work better than single-sex? Life is co-educational. I mean, same-sex schools were well-suited for the first half of last century when life was definitely not co-educational. But I think these days, I do agree that there is sometimes a short-term benefit to a single-sex classroom. But the far greater benefit is the long-term one, getting used to girls and boys mixing, being ready to go out into the world and, and work alongside one another. For me, gender segregation is a very backward step, and it's much more important to learn to work alongside in a mixed classroom in a fully co-educational environment. I feel quite strongly that same-sex schools are disadvantaging their students in the long term. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree with everything Chris has said, hence why I've always worked in a co-educational setting. It is the real world. A dad of two girls, I would always want my daughters to be educated in that world. And I think emotional intelligence is is such an important thing to develop and empathy as a character trait is so important and i think a co-educational environment is key to developing that sense of empathy that prepares them for well not just their daily life in school but beyond and into the world of work be a big strong believer in a co-educational environment i was going to say the only caveat is that co-education has to be delivered in a way that is giving genuine equality of opportunity and i think there are schools which perhaps have been boys schools and take girls in who find it quite hard to make that step. So I think we're fortunate. We've been co-educational for just over 50 years. In fact, last year, we we would have been celebrating the 50th anniversary of co-education, but for the pandemic striking in the way it did. So for us, it's part of our DNA. People are used to it and expect it. But I do think that for it to be successful, you really have to genuinely believe in and provide equality of opportunity. Yeah. And there's obviously that other hybrid model, which is the diamond model, where children are taught together during their primary years, separated from 11 until GCSEs, and then they come back together for sixth form. Is that a good alternative? I think that provides potentially some short-term benefit, but long-term loss. Why would you stop somebody learning about something that's so important in life for a key part of their, their educational experience? You learn more quickly than at any stage apart from being a toddler when you're in those early teenage years. And if you're denied the opportunity to learn about who you are in relation to other people, that seems a wasted opportunity to me. It doesn't mean that people won't make mistakes at that stage. And of course, put boys and girls together. There are challenges to that. Far better to understand what the challenges are, support the students through it and to give them the best experience coming out of it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I take your point, you know, that school needs to reflect the real world. And, you know, I certainly have that view when it comes to education and, and, and how we teach and what we teach, because that needs to reflect what the real world needs. You know, we kind of talked about skills based rather than it being a necessary curriculum base, and that needs to change as well. So we're looking what employers want. And I think Actually, if we do look at what the real world wants, then we can adjust and maybe change education for the better. But I know that there'll still be a strong supporters for, for the single sex education. Yeah, and it's a market that's, that's kind of settling itself a little bit now as well. So there are fewer and fewer single sex schools out there. And that's because there are fewer and fewer people who see that as the right way to go. I mean, it's interesting to see Winchester, one of the most traditional all-boys schools, taking steps to bring girls into the sixth form. I think really, if they were a bit braver, they'd take girls in all the way through, and then that would that would enable there to be proper change. I think it's a form of education that probably has had its day. Yeah, I mean, it's it's small steps. I mean, we, we do see that single-sex girls' schools completely outstrip the number of single-sex boys' schools. And, you know, you tend to see it's always the boys' schools that are having to go co-educational at some point, always start at the sixth form. But do you see Winchester going fully co-ed this century? I've given you that's 80 a- years. I've given you 80 years <laughs> yeah, to make a punt. <laughs> I'm not going to be there in 80 years to, to call you on it. I'd be surprised if they haven't by the end of the decade. Yeah, I tend to, be to agree. Honest, what, what, what's, the, what's the point making the change to sixth form only? I worked in a school which had girls just in the sixth form, and that's not a very satisfactory model, I don't think. I think if you're going to be co-ed, you've got to commit to it. Otherwise, what are you saying to the girls? What are you saying to the boys? Is co-education right or not? It's not a fence you can sit on, I don't think. Let's get on to the other topic around independent schools, and that's the role of boarding. We have seen, obviously, a decline in national boarding, so UK boarding across our schools. Does boarding still have a place in the UK, or is it just being supplemented by revenue from international students as a requirement rather than a need? Definitely, definitely, it's got a place. I think the big shift has been one from sending people off to board to it being a family decision that boarding is the right path. Boarding has to be much more flexible these days. The old-fashioned send them off to school, pick them up at the end of the term and hope you get sent back the young adult that you were hoping your teenager was going to turn into. That model is, is pretty dated and struggling now. So we're much more flexible in our approach and we want parents to be much more involved. But for lots of families, it's a great way of making the lifestyle work. If you've got both parents working, they're working till late, they're struggling to provide the sort of support, the the attention that the child maybe needs, whereas a boarding school can step in and help with that, give great experience, develop independence, give the child the opportunity to take part in lots of activities, develop friendships, shared experiences. So I think there's a really positive story to tell about boarding. It's maybe um, there's a media image of what boarding is, which is still what boarding was perhaps 50 years ago. And there's a reality, which is a much more forward-looking environment. The overseas question, I mean, there are schools whose boarding completely leaning on the overseas market to survive. If that's the way the economics of the school works, so be it. For us, it's, it's a very clear decision that we want to have a cosmopolitan cohort in the school because it provides a great experience for the kids coming through. If they're learning about different cultures, different experiences, again, it's making them ready for the world outside the school. Felstead is a, quite a remote rural village in Essex, which is, you know, you could be very inward looking, but we want people to be outward looking and to look at the world. So we benefit hugely from having students from 30 different countries around the world. It's great for our students. It's great for the students coming in as well. So yeah, I think boarding has definitely got a future. I think it's got to be adaptable. It's got to be flexible. But no, it's definitely got a place. 
Yeah, and I think I've, I've certainly seen that as well. I think the adaptability, parents want that. It's understanding your marketplace. You know, my eldest son boards, he goes weekly boarding. And it was a conscious decision because, you know, we just knew he would get the best out of it all the way through the wraparound, the ability to study, but all the extracurricular. And, you know, it was a big decision because there's a lot of misconceptions. You know, you talked about, you know, the 50 kind of year old view of it all. And that's still worrying. So are we doing enough? And, you know, there are associations that obviously lobby and drive boarding schools within the UK. Is enough being done or will it always be this way that people just have a negative perception of boarding schools? I think it's a better media story to tell a negative story. And so I think that probably going to win the day in popular press a little bit. Um, so are we doing enough? No, we're probably not doing enough. We probably could be doing, we probably could be doing more as a sector to talk about the positives. And you, you think about some of, the, some of the amazing people who come through boarding school environment and the, the stories they must have to tell as a result of that. Hugely positive. It's a good question. It's a good question. I think we probably should be doing more. But you're doing a great job of telling those stories. I think your, your social media presence is fantastic. I know you have a strong team that, that work hard to make sure that that voice is told, the authentic voice is there. And you can see the real benefit to boarding life and life of Elson. And I think getting that authentic voice through where it's not about promise anymore is hugely crucial for every school to say, actually, look, don't just believe what we might write in the marketing piece. Actually, come and have a look. And I think you guys are doing a really great job at that. That's the key is to come and have a look, come and have a look and see, because you talk about prep boarding. Yeah, most of us, they live within four or five miles of the school, and yet they may choose to board one or two nights a week. We talk about the flexibility. We have to be more flexible than even the senior school because of the age of the children. But it's, as you said, it's that wraparound. You know, it might be the hockey academy on a Thursday night. It means they can stay, have supper, parents aren't toing and froing, and the children are probably having a better time than being picked up, taken home anyway. Yeah, it, it's that adaptability. Yeah. Let's talk about headship. Why did you both become heads and what is the best part of the job? Why did I become a head? Right. Yeah. Good question. It was a long time ago now. <laughs> but it, it, it's why did I become a head? I think it's I loved my teaching and I think it was I like working with people and I like developing children and people and, and staff in, this, in the same way. It's that sense of empathy and working with people and just trying to make a difference for their lives, obviously for staff but most importantly, the children. That's why I chose chose that path back in the day to take that route because I was ambitious, you know, and I, I worked in a number of great schools and I wanted to be able to make that difference. It's seeing those light bulb moments maybe um, in one of my English lessons when they finally get something <laughs> that I'm trying to teach them or to see, you know, to see the child who might struggle, you know, with their maths, but is fantastic on the, on the netball court or in the rugby field or on the stage um, or playing their instrument. It's those moments which, which really make the job. And what about you, Chris? Um, in terms of becoming a head, I mean, I, it's not something I'd ever really aspired to do, if I'm honest. Just ended up there. <laughs> yeah, well, sort of, because I, I, I mean, I've enjoyed every job that I've done along the way. I, I loved being a housemaster. I thought that was a great job. And I was very, very sad to move on from that. But I guess I'd got to the stage where I felt like I could have a bigger impact on the school. I then thought I would really enjoy a deputy head's job. Someone who'd inspired me at school was my deputy head. So that was a role that I thought I really aspired to take on. So I enjoyed that a lot as well. But then it got to the point where I started to feel that maybe I could do a bit more again. The opportunity came up. I've really enjoyed it again. It's uh, Obviously, it has its moments. There's um, tough decisions to make and tough times to go through. And I think the, la the last year has at times been pretty tough. And there's probably more hard times ahead, if I'm honest, coming out from this, because it's going to take a little while before we're back to normal. 
but no, I mean, I, I enjoy as well as Simon said, I, I enjoy the fact every day can be different. But there's nothing better than being able to take the credit for what 500 and however many young people do. So every day there's somebody doing something incredible and you sort of feel like, well, that's reflected glory. It's brilliant that you've got somebody who's going off to a conservatoire or somebody who's, who's playing rugby for England or somebody who's just got a place at Cambridge. I mean, it's brilliant. You just sit there and think, I'd like to feel I've had a tiny little part in that journey. So it's certainly got lots of good moments. Well, it's quite clear to me that you both are extremely passionate about leading the school. You certainly do live into your your tagline, I think, of making a difference really shines through in, in the way that you've answered my question today. And also what I've read online that you're doing at Felsted. I think your community are extremely lucky. I think it's an incredible school. It's great to see from an outsider looking in. I get to see the reality and it's not just the promise. You know, for me, this is what this podcast is about. It's about shining a light on leaders in education. It's been an incredibly tough year. So let's think ahead now to the end of this academic year, which isn't far off now, right? Who would have thought we'd be thinking about the end of the academic year? But if you were to kind of be thinking ahead, what is the first thought at the end of that last day of the summer term and school year? And then what do you go off and do? What are you looking forward to most? In terms of my first thought on that last day, I suppose it's reflection. What went well? What didn't go quite so well? Um, And then you spend your summer holidays thinking about that and improving that. You do look back. This year will be celebratory to get to the end of the academic year. It is a moment of reflection to think back and what went really well. Think back to the highlight of that year. And what do I go and do? Well, this year, hopefully, I'm I'm going straight down to Cornwall. That's what I'll be doing via my in-law's 50th wedding anniversary dinner, hopefully, which has been booked. And hopefully, we can go ahead with that. So, Samara and R. And what about you, Chris? Unfortunately, this is going to be another summer which is going to be dominated by teacher-assessed or centre-assessed grades. So I suspect that when the when the last person drives out at the end of the summer term, there might still be a slight ache in the heart looking forward to how that's going to work out. Hopefully better than last summer. You know, the handling of it last summer was pretty difficult. I think as a school, we did the absolute best that we could. What else will I do? I, I will catch up on sleep. I don't sleep quite as much in the term time as I, as I perhaps do in the holiday. I'll look to get the whites on and play the odd game of cricket if I can. Yeah, just, just have a bit of time with the family. A bit more time with the family, go out running with a dog and read a few more books, I hope. No, no, fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's lonely at the top and, you know, everyone deserves a, deserves that break. It's, it's quite exhausting. And when you do shut things off, actually, the way you've shut down, I mean, I, I go completely. I can't actually handle it. I, I need at least a week. I feel like, you know, if I'm going to switch off from anything, it, it takes me a while to reestablish it and get back to a normality. The other challenge probably is that because there's so much uncertainty out there at the moment, is that for all schools, there's going to be a lot more work through the summer to getting ready for September as well, just to make sure that, you know, recruitment is working as well as it could do, retention's working well and so on. So I think there's this 12-month period is not going to be the end of the pandemic. This is the end of the beginning we're at at the moment or the beginning of the end. I'm not sure which one it is, but we've got a bit more to do before we get through it. So I think that's something else that probably the summer will feature. Yeah, no, you're right. It's I think I think there'll be shorter downtime, but everyone needs it. You need to disconnect, to recharge, to come back fully focused, to take your school on the next exciting stage of its journey. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.